I described the events, I just assumed blow my brains out. And I promised all my fans across Canada, and I fought, I fought. Because I won't let them rape me. I mean, I don't have to be strong. We can have a schmoz or whatever you want. You know, we swear to God all you want, someday God is going to strike you down. Hello and welcome to Camel Clutch Cinema, the podcast where we talk about movies that star wrestlers or have wrestling in them. I'm Guy Hutchinson. And I'm Craig Cohen. On this episode, we are talking about Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows. It's a documentary. It's a little bit different for this show, but I think we're going to have a great time. This aired uh, in December 20th, 1998 on A&E. This was a, was a huge deal, and I think everybody listening, if you're listening to this show, you understand what this is about. This is the Montreal Screwjob film. But I think a lot of people haven't seen this, you know, or at least haven't seen it in, in a decade. Yeah, I know I hadn't. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to cover from that perspective. I don't think we're going to give you any new insight into the actual screw job itself. I mean, that's been talked about at length on, on other places. They just did that documentary style shoot interview type thing on WWE films last year where they, they sat down, Sean and Brett and talked about it. Yeah. The greatest rivalries. Yeah, so I mean, there's that that has been covered, but this documentary I feel has not been examined at least through the prism of looking back at it. So let's do that right here. Okay, Craig, why don't you give me the plot summary? All right, here is the plot summary that I pulled off of Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Hitman Heart is documentary. Uh, Hitman Heart is a documentary. Docu- like no, no, no. It, but it says Hitman Heart <laughs> is documentary like no other produced. Yes. So here I am copy editing yeah. uh, Amazon. Yeah, no, that's the, you just say it the right way. It's Hitman Heart is documentary. All right. Hitman Heart is documentary like no other ever produced. Authentic drama inside the multi-million dollar World Wrestling Federation. The real-life battle between superstar Bret Hart and WWF, WWF owner Vince McMahon. As Bret Hart, five-time WWF champion, prepares for the final match of his 20-year career. He's unaware that he's about to be the target of the most scandalous real-life double-cross in the history of professional wrestling. For 90 minutes, we live through a roller coaster series of shocking events as they unfold before, during, and after the celebrated match. It's tough saying WWF, isn't it? It is. It, it, you know, I, it's, it's amazing that I'm, I'm actually used to saying WWE now after, you know, 10 years. When they did that first movement to the get the F out thing where that was their the commercials they ran and we were all supposed to stop saying it, I couldn't do it. And yeah. I, I think I went probably about five years where I just was like, no, well, it's WWF, you know, whatever they want to call it is their problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I was very much like that. And as crazy as this sounds, I initially thought part of um, buying WCW was having a name that they could use. Ooh, um, yeah. Just, just WWE just didn't enter the entertainment part of it. Just didn't at the time didn't didn't I don't didn't make sense to me. No. But, you know, now of course they've gone on to become what they are, and it makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. But it also I, I never understood why they have a logo that has no E on it, but th- so it's just two W's, and then the the name is WWE. I just find that very confusing. I don't think that that's I don't think it makes a lot of sense, and I hate the scratch logo now. It really looks stupid. Yes, you know that's and what another, 
That's what they call the, the current logo and the one before with the F where it's scratched in. And apparently Vince scratched that into a table in a conference room one day and said, oh, make it this. But I, I don't like that. I really like the old logo. And for a while, when I when they had the scratch logo come out, about a year after that, I'd see the old logo on something and be like, look at this old stupid logo. But now I look at it kind of like the logo for the New York Mets, the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, teams that have had logos for a long period of time. And they're classic. Just stick with the logo you came to the dance with. Yeah. And actually, I'm not sure if they still sell them at events or on the, the shop zone, even though I don't think it's called shop zone anymore. But they had um, probably when they were doing that old school raw that they did a, a, a couple of years ago. They put out a line of classic WWE T-shirts, mm-hmm. which yeah, had absolutely. That, that logo on them, and it was really cool. And I probably should have bought one. Yeah, they they have the uh, the the one with without the F too. They do like you know they did that Cena version where yeah. it was just the WWE. Anyway, we're we're off the subject here. the The point is, this documentary came out nineteen ninety eight. Came on A&E. I recorded it off A&E, and that's what I watched for this. I sat down and watched the videotape with the commercials in it from a few days before Christmas in 1998. And I've seen it a few times since the actual event happened, and I've seen it in parts as well because there's a lot of clips on YouTube that I'll say, hey, let me watch this one part of it. Uh, and so over the years, I've, I've seen parts of it on there. I also did purchase the VHS that came out. There was eventually a VHS tape that you could buy in stores, as well as one that A&E sold you at the end of the program. And it's now on DVD, coupled with a short documentary on Owen Hart, which is very interesting if you get a chance to check that out. Yeah, and I believe Brett sells that directly on his site, and in addition to like Amazon and other retailers. Yes, indeed. All right, well, the director of this is a man named Paul Jay. Are you familiar with him? Um, not until I looked him up for this show. He's, What'd you find uh, out? He's a journalist and filmmaker, and he's the founder uh, and CEO of the Real News Network. He uh, was born and raised in Toronto and holds dual citizenship with the United States. I'm not looking it up, but the Real News Network can't be real. That's got to be. <laughs> I think it's. Doesn't that I think sound it, like in The Simpsons? You know, oh, sure. We go to the Real it, News Network. Yeah, I think it's Canadian, though, so we can give it a little bit of a, a All right. pass. All right, so. The documentary starts off, you get you get a, a, an interesting feel where they're establishing what wrestling is, and we see Brett, he's entering an arena, he's getting ready for the match. I like the way this starts out. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, and I think if, if this documentary really does anything, it exposes the business, not in a bad way. I mean, I, sometimes you say the word exposes and it makes people think that's negative, but it exposes the business for what it really was and is in a way that you really don't see very often. I mean, if you, if you think about it, there's a handful of, of real behind-the-scenes documentaries that are out there. Mm-hmm. And, and this one really shows a lot of really, really interesting stuff. And it still amazes me watching it now, after not having seen it for, for quite a while, is how much they show that, you know, nowadays... I'm sure the WWE wouldn't allow somebody that kind of access. Yeah, they they did. Uh, Beyond the Mat was right around this time as well. And, I mean, Vince was also the unreal story of professional wrestling. And Vince was really open to letting people have access to his library and to have access to his events to film these types of things. And I think this may have been the one that kind of put an end to it. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is I don't really think that anybody in this really comes out looking like a bad person. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, at the beginning, we see the fans, and, and I noticed this several times throughout this. I noticed this all the time with Bret Hart, but there's there's a sign right in, towards the, you know, like within five seconds of the opening of the film, somebody holding up a sign that says, you know, something that they love Bret, and it's Bret with two Ts. And uh, I see this, you know, Bret Hart spells it with only one T for some reason I don't understand, but yeah. throughout the entire movie, every now and then you'll you'll get a crowd shot, and you'll be like, oh, there's another one with two Ts, you know, <laughs> somebody... Yeah. Somebody that didn't know and didn't have Google in 1998 to look it up. Yeah, it's kind of hard to fault people back then, but nowadays it's inexcusable. Uh, so, so we get a lot of Brett talking about the character of the hitman in a in a way that I don't know. Just it 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 seems odd to me. I mean, I don't know that it's wrong in any way. It just yeah. seems odd. It's it's one of those things. I I've seen this happen. You know, with. Uh, Jim Henson once talking about one of the Muppets and explaining the backstory and, and talking about it with, with passion. And it, it just feels odd to people that aren't in the business, but he goes through how he can't lose this match. And then we, we, we see part of the end of the movie and we cut back to the beginning of the film to a year before, you know, when they first started filming this a year before the, the Montreal screw job. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've talked about on, earlier episodes of this of this podcast is that that's one of the biggest differences with this industry now is it seems like wrestlers are more um, able to separate their in-ring persona from who they are outside of the ring, whereas this was still a time where if you were a guy in the ring, that's who you were outside of the ring. Mm-hmm. So we see, uh, we see Brett cutting a promo. We see Brett botching a promo yeah. many times. <laughs> I, really I love this. I thought that was really great. And that was another thing. It, it sort of showed, you know, what goes on. It's not just a guy going there, cutting promos and leaving. You know, it's probably a very, very long process. They're probably there for hours, probably sometimes, depending on the talent, you know. Yeah. Cutting well, these promos and perfecting them. And also, I wonder. No, no, no. I, I, I think, but I don't think he was recording just one promo. What I yeah. think he was recording was those ones you used to see on Superstars where they'd yes. be like, you know, uh, well, I don't know if everybody else knows this. They'd be they'd be saying, you know, coming to Portland and I'm going to come to Portland and I'm going to fight you, you know, Bob Backlund. And then they'd be like, all right, now the next one, you know, is Miami. Hey, Miami, I'm coming to fight Bob Backlund, you know. And so Brett would have to record a whole bunch of different ones that would be shown on syndicated programs in different markets. So I would say, Brett, very decent promo guy, not one of the all time greatest, but a, I would say a guy that's, that's very capable of doing a promo without botching it. I'm I'm betting he had done 40 at the point when he started really flubbing his lines. Sure, yeah, yeah, I I, I think so. We see his uh, his son Blade. You like yeah, his we, son Blade? Yeah, and actually his 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 kid uh was you know he's he's got a couple of children that are in this, but Blade was at this time I guess Blade was on the road with him, so Blade is like one of the biggest characters in this movie, if you know, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brett doing the the uh, interview in the empty arena. I, I'm not I'm, I'm not uh, sure which which parts of this you want to focus on because there's a lot of things that go on in this uh, in this first sequence here. What, what did you What did you think? Was there anything about the feel of this that you liked? And and what did you see going forward in the movie? Well, yeah, it seemed like you get dropped right into it. Um, it, it starts really really quickly, um, and I liked a lot of this because I think it sort of showed the you know the chaotic nature of of, of life as a wrestler 
And, you know, seeing, you know, Brett interviewing, being interviewed in an empty arena was, was really cool. And we've since seen that even on WWE programming where, you know, you have Cena before the WrestleMania where he fought The Rock in the empty arena saying how big the match is. But again, I think that at the time, this was something you really didn't see. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, we see Vince Russo backstage, which was yeah. off-putting to say the least. I, uh, I, I have a picture that I got taken with Abdullah the Butcher once, and I always tell people it's the greatest picture ever, except for the fact that you can see Vince Russo in the background. Um, <laughs> Vince Russo, interesting guy. I heard something interesting about him just the other day on a PW Torch interview. Um, uh, a female wrestler named Roxy from Shimmer was on, and she was talking about dealing with Vince Russo and mentioned that he doesn't swear anymore. Okay. And she said that he'll say stuff like, oh, this effing thing or, you know, this B, you know, he just he, he just purposely uh, censors himself. And uh, I thought that was interesting because Vince Russo, notorious for swearing on an April 2000 episode of WCW Nitro, where he's <laughs> He swore at Ric Flair and called him a piece of S in the yes. way he would say it now on the bottom of his shoe. <laughs> on the bottom of his shoe. That he was going to flush down the toilet. Yeah, but this is actually a pretty neat sequence because you see Russo, who was a writer at the time for WWF, going over promo ideas with uh, Brett, uh, uh, Jimmy Anvil Nightheart. I think uh, the British Bulldogs there. Basically, the, the whole Heart Foundation. You even see uh, the late Brian Pillman in the background. And then we actually see footage of them uh, cutting the promo. I know. And then we get to a scene with uh, with Goldust. Yeah, and this was where it kind of got weird for me in terms of almost seemed like they had some filler here with, you know, they introduce Goldust, they show some fans talking about wrestling, then they introduce Vader, who doesn't really have anything to do with the documentary as a whole. Right. Uh, it's cool to see Vader. You learn that he's... Um, he's got a shopping a, a, center. Yeah, he's a real estate guy. He's a guy of business. Um, but there's no payoff. Um, yeah. No, I, I think... I, I get the feeling with this documentary that... They, obviously, they didn't know that a year into filming this documentary about Bret Hart that they would have this... Uh, this whole, you know, Montreal screw job, which would really sell their documentary. So I think they probably talked a lot to, you know, a bunch of different people and tried to get a lot of different things in there. I think that Brett was probably the focus of it because he was the head of the company and the biggest, right. you know, the, the face of the company, I should say, and the, the biggest star that, that agreed to talk to them. But I think that's why, you know, they have gold dust here. They have, they have Vader. They have a lot with Sonny. I think that yeah. that's the reason for all of this. Yeah, and actually, uh, Sonny and the next person they introduce sort of tie in well because Sonny, we see a handful of times through it, and she and we and they talk to her at the end of the of the documentary. Um, and it's funny when she's introduced. Um, you know, Brett uh, says, uh, you know, she's very flirtatious, but she's just a friend. Right. It's there's a there's a famous promo Sean did where he referred to uh, Brett having sunny days, which apparently, you know, was a was a saying that he was having an affair with Sonny. And this caused a lot of friction in Brett's marriage. Uh, Sonny has said in in a shoot interview uh, that you can find online. Sonny said that she uh, and I, I have the quote here. Number one, I've never slept with Brett Hart. Never. And she talks about how she was a good friend of his. Now, normally 
I don't know that I'd, I'd believe things that Sonny says, but she talks about sleeping with a whole lot of people. And there's, yeah. she talks about how she slept with Sean. She talked about how she slept with a whole bunch of other people. So it seemed odd that she just wanted to. And at this point, Brett's marriage has already dissolved. So it, she wouldn't even be covering up to save that. So I almost have to believe her, which makes it this great threes company kind of story that went yes. on backstage <laughs> that caused Brett and Sean to have all this friction and get in a fist fight. Yeah, uh, and and actually, and then that's the next person we see. They we get the introduction of of Shawn Michaels, um, and then there's a little bit of talk about Vince. Vince is a, a through line through this movie, even you don't even though you don't see him a lot. And then we get um, you know some discussion of Stu uh, um, at a WWF event, and and we sort of learn about the Hart family. And then we go to Hart House, and we see the, the, you know the the huge um, Hart family gathered for Stu's birthday. Also cut with uh, an interview of Helen uh, Hart, Brett's mom, saying she doesn't really like the business. Yes. She says she doesn't like the business. She says that she doesn't want her – she didn't want her kids to be wrestlers. She didn't want her daughters to marry wrestlers, and that all happened. Um, and then after she gives this promo, it cuts to commercial on the original A&E broadcast, and I see Tom Arnold for Web TV. <laughs> <laughs> and this was almost every commercial break had a web TV spot and they all had a celebrity who would pitch it in a different way. Tom Arnold, uh, you know, said, Oh, I'm going to send a picture through my television to, to my mom of me and my family, but I don't have a family. So I rented a family. And, and so we see that we see the next commercial was Elmer Fudd and Michael Jordan in an MCI commercial. Remember how big those were, where they were oh constantly yeah, trying yeah, long distance, save on long distance. I remember that spot. And it was and these were like Space Jam uh you know type commercials although they all had a Christmas theme cuz that was a few days away. Uh there was a PetSmart commercial where there was a dog, a cat and a mouse all hanging out together and they're like peace on earth at PetSmart. Um and they were promoing Sonny Bono's biography cuz Sonny Bono uh had passed away at this point and so that was one of the big things that they had coming up on A&E was Sonny Bono's biography and Gene Wilder in some kind of TV show or movie called Murder in a Small Town which brightened my day just to see Gene Wilder but oh. that's what I saw before we come back to the to the uh, the the Hart family and see a little bit more with a lot of these you know I think like Brackus is there there's like a lot yeah, of yeah I you know I couldn't remember who that was yeah and then I think Jim the Anvil Neidhart you see him there I mean you see a lot of you see a lot of like you know oddball relatives of the uh, of the of the Hart family yeah and then we get some uh, some footage of you know different match montages that you know the Hitman was in. And he talks about developing the sharp, sharpshooter, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that was good. And, I like that. And then he talks about um, the art of wrestling, and he explains that a lot of people think wrestling's fake, but um, it for him it was always a full contact sport. But he took pride in the fact that he never uh, never got hurt, and he never hurt anybody in the ring. Yeah. And and uh, sadly. His career was pretty much ended by somebody hurting him in the ring. Right. Yes. Bill Goldberg was a clumsy oaf mm-hmm. who, right? That's who you're referring to, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I like this sequence. I don't know how true it is. I haven't, you know, interviewed everybody that's ever wrestled, Brett. Maybe there's yeah. somebody out there, you know, maybe the goon sitting at home going, he hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> he hurt my ankle. But, but – I like yeah. how this sequence goes. He shows how he, he's pulling punches and stuff, and I thought that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the great, you know, one of my favorite things about Bret Hart is he's one of my favorite wrestlers from that era is how physical his matches looked and how high energy they were. Um, I mean, he really seemed like he was one of those guys that could get a good match out of anyone. Mm-hmm. So we get a real, some real quick uh, story of Brett defending his, his sister against a bully who was two years older than him, which yeah. transitions into him winning the WWF title and being Boom. hoisted up. Yeah, they go right from, <laughs> from him being a teenager to he won the title. Yeah, yeah, which was kind of a weird transition. And then we get to the dungeon. Yeah, I <laughs> I got to tell you, I am not a fan of this part of this movie because – I don't want to hate the late Stu Hart. I don't want to look at him as being a horrible, abusive man who hurt his children, made them scared for their lives, hurt other people that came and paid him money to train them, and seemed to get off on just making people feel pain for for reasons that I don't understand because I'm not, you know, a professional wrestler. I can tell you I was an amateur wrestler in high school, and if my coach had treated us like that, he'd be in jail. Yeah. Uh, so we get, you know, footage of, of Stu, quote unquote, stretching people, mm-hmm. um, you know, guys crying out in pain. And then it transitions to this really weird sequence where Brett's sitting next to a <laughs> dummy getting fried in an electric chair at his house. Yeah. He's like, I got a Halloween prop down here, but this is fake. My dad's pain is real. Yeah, I guess that was the, the only relation. And um, I, I think, well, you know, we'll talk about Stu as, as this goes on, but. Yeah, you know, it, it seemed like one of those things where I'm not sure taking a lot of pain and being stretched out by an 82-year-old man is really that great <laughs> of a preparation to become a pro wrestler. Right. And then what I got was Hitman, Wrestling with Shadows, we'll be right back on A&E. And then I got to hear about Gateway Computers, which were talking about the differences between CD-ROMs and DVDs. Wow. <laughs> I saw the new Acura, which looked like a piece of junk, because... <laughs> Because it's over a decade old. Um, they talked about the bio of the year. And I thought this was great. The bio of the year. This I, The reason why I'm telling you about these commercials is this is how people saw it when it first came out. But more than that is this really gives you an idea of this time frame. When you hear about how antiquated these things are, this is what time this was. They're talking about the biography of the year. And they're like, they're asking people. And people are like on their front porch going, I think it should be Clinton. And then they're like, I think it should be Monica Lewinsky. I think it should be Kenneth Starr. I think it should be Hillary. And then one guy's like, I think it should be Jerry Seinfeld. And they, it, it was, I was like, what, what happened here? It was, you know, it was like everybody involved with the Clinton administration and the Lewinsky scandal or Jerry Seinfeld. We're not sure which way we're going. But uh, they also there was uh, there was another promo at this point that I found really cool to see, which was uh, a promo with Jimmy Kimmel and Ben Stein, where Jimmy Kimmel, you know, was on Win Ben Stein's Money. And this was a promo they had for the Super Bowl, although they had to call it the big game Win Win Ben's tickets to the big game. But Jimmy Kimmel, you know, was was really playing background to Ben Stein at this point. It was kind of interesting to see that just because of what a star he became. I'm sure there was also a spot at this point for MCI and another <laughs> gateway ad. You know, they, they did a whole bunch of gateway ads. It was really, really a lot of fun. Computers were big and they were showing those big, clumsy square monitors and everything. It was great. Yeah. So back to the program, we get some interesting talk that, you know, isn't really the focus of this documentary. You get talk about Brett not wanting to be a wrestler when he was younger, how he got into amateur wrestling, and then finally 
helping his dad in Stampede Wrestling, which was the federation that Stu Hart owned up in Canada. And then there's talk of how Brett ended up in WWF when Stu sold Stampede Wrestling to Vince, mm-hmm. um, which leads to discussion of Brett getting an offer from WCW after 14 years with the WWF. It's for $9 million over three years versus a WWF contract that would be 20 years for a lot less money. Right. There's talk of Vince versus Ted Turner and then Raw versus Nitro. Brett is ultimately thankful to Vince. They show him on Raw cutting a promo where he says, I'm not leaving. The post-promo clip, uh, Brett compares his da- uh, Vince to his dad. So you really see the relationship they had. And then we jump to an event in Canada. Um, it was an In Your House Number sixteen. Do you remember the name of that in your house? Uh, what well, what was it? What was it called? It was up in Canada. It was called Canadian Stampede. Very good, very good. And this uh, is another one of the things in the documentary I really like because you get um, a booking discussion with Pat Patterson, where they're pretty much going over the, the the match, which is another one of those things that you don't get to see very often. And this was a horrible match. It was uh, <laughs> the four members of the New Heart Foundation. So it was, it was Brett Neidhart, uh, Owen Hart, British Bulldog, Brian Pillman, mm-hmm. you know, all of them versus uh, Stone Cold, Ken Shamrock, Goldust, and the Legion of Doom. It's like yes. it really was just, you know, can we throw a bunch of people in no match? Yes, we can. That's what we can do. <laughs> yeah, it was no, no real, you know, trying to look for any kind of synergy. And then they go to uh, a, a story that I really enjoyed seeing, which is the Dino Bravo story. Oh, which- yeah, yeah. And they actually have footage from it, which is very, very cool. Brett's talking to his son about being injured, and he talks about breaking his sternum. Yeah. Yeah, he, he he's telling his son in the in the car, you know, did you, did you hear about the – it's awkward because you can tell it's Brett saying – they were like, why don't you tell about that? And he's like, oh, I'll, you know, let me tell this story and make it look casual. Yeah. Um, because who has that conversation with their kid? <laughs> yeah. But he's explaining the injury, which is which is very uh, fascinating. I mean, about how he, you know, he thought he had punctured his lung and everything. But what then I thought was more interesting, and and I believe you're the one that pointed this out to me. But uh, it, it's so sad how he talks about Tino Bravo. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Brett's outside of the ring after breaking his sternum and, and breaking some ribs. He can't breathe. He can't talk. Dino assumes that he's okay and he's selling. So Dino goes out, starts kicking him. The kicks look very, very pulled. Um, Dino finally throws him in the ring, and he goes for the pin. And even though Brett cannot breathe, he says, I cannot lose to this guy, and he puts his uh, feet up on the rope and rolls out of the ring. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is Dino Bravo, and he refers to him just as this guy. This is a guy I didn't want to lose to. Yeah, I mean, come on. First of all, I got to tell you this. This also, anybody that wants to argue whether Brett should have been able to lose in Montreal, well, Dino Bravo apparently had to lose. They might have been in Canada. I don't know where this event was. You had two Canadians in the ring at once. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this very, goes, very cool. Very, no, very, what were you going to say? I was going to say it was a cool sequence. I mean, anytime that they're talking about something and they're able to show footage of what they're talking about, it always makes for for a cool presentation. Are you a hundred percent confident that that is the clip that he was talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I, I thought so too. The only reason I doubt it is there's a documentary on Batista where they're talking about a match with Mark Henry, and and I watched it, and I was pretty sure that they that that it wasn't the footage, and then yeah. I started thinking in my mind, well. 
how would I know? You know, I mean, how would I know if the, you know, I mean, obviously this was the sequence of events that they're describing, but how do you know that, you know, they didn't go through the library and say, well, what else do we have? And you notice Brett says this guy, maybe it wasn't Dino Bravo, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to Google it because I've got another commercial break. I'm watching commercials (laughs) for the Mach 3 Razor. This was the weirdest commercial. Do you remember the Mach 3 Razor? Sure, it had three blades. This changed the world, apparently. They're showing this commercial. They've got stockings hung by the chimney with care, and then they've got rockets going off. They're cutting to rockets, and I'm going, what on earth are they selling here? And then the rockets all come together and become a Mach 3 razor, which zooms into the stocking. And that was just crazy. And then Susan Lucci told us about web TV and did a whole bunch of jokes about how she hadn't won the Emmy or whatever it was, which now she's won and nobody remembers her. (laughs) You know, what's funny about the Mach 3 is that was, you know, this was 15 years ago. They're only up to what, like the um, the five blades. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I know my razor. I think Well, how many blades do you need? That seems like enough blades. I guess, but you'd think that, you know, the jump from three to five over 15 years, that's, that's not huge. You'd think by now that you'd have 12 blades or whatever, you know. Oh, no, over a thousand <laughs> years, they went from one to three. I mean, I think three to five is a lot. What are they going to have a 16 blade razor? I'll tell you, man, that's when <laughs> you get a close shave with those, with those five blade razors. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you do. And now, and now back to, and now back to A&E Presents. And they kept calling it either Hitman Heart or Wrestling with Shadows or both. But often they would just go now back to Hitman Heart. And, and when they said it as Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows, it sounded like it was a TV series. And this is the first episode. Like we're going to get other episodes. Yeah. Overall, I don't really think this was a great title for it. Wrestling with Shadows doesn't really mean anything to me. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it, you know, that almost makes it seem like Brett had some kind of inner conflict or something like that. Yeah. I, really, his, his I, conflict was with everybody around him. Right. I, I wonder if the title was something thought of beforehand that they didn't want to change and that maybe it was going to be a documentary about should I get out of the business and my dad and is Vader right to, yeah, you know, to start his business? Yeah, that's a real interesting perspective, uh, you know, that, that. I tend to forget when when watching this. So then we get a really interesting sequence because it sort of ties into what leads to Brett, you know, the screw job. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some more talk of WCW versus WWF. Brett explains that in the in the WWF he's a hero, and then we talk about heels and we see Mankind and we have a really cool oh, uh, like yeah. sit down interview with Mankind. <laughs> and then there's talk with Triple H where Brett pretty much says that. Um, Everybody will always hate Triple H. He'll always be the most hated heel out there. And it's very funny considering that he was a heel for a very long time, but he has been a face for so long now that it's it's really funny to see him talked about in that light mm-hmm. yeah and they cover the whole change with austin which which every wrestling fan you know at least of our age knows you know the mm-hmm. that match where they switched places and yeah. uh it, it is interesting to see all this in perspective i guess because all of this stuff was so big at the time it doesn't seem that interesting just because i remember it all so clearly yeah yeah and around this time we also were 40 minutes in at this point this is the first time that we we see Brett's wife 
Oh, at least in a manner where she talks. She might have appeared earlier on, but right. this was the first time that I noted, wait, hey, there's Brett's wife for the, you know, 40 minutes into a 90-minute documentary, you know, which was kind of interesting. I don't want to criticize Brett's wife too much, but when you're watching this documentary, they they go out of their way to put to to zoom in on a picture of her that's like almost like a model shot of how pretty she was. And then to zoom out and show her now where she looks like she looks a lot like Honey Boo Boo's mom. Yeah. And she looks really, really tired. She looks exhausted. She looks so tired. And she also later in the movie, she's so upset about whether he's going to lose that match or not. And and you get the impression back and forth that either a she doesn't care about any of it or <laughs> gee, she cares so much about it. It just it's yes. it, she's a weird character. And the thing that I remember the most was when you and I first watched this, all we kept laughing about was that she's wearing brown pants, like brown stretch or sweatpants that looked very much like the brown stretch pants that mankind wore. And we kind of, I think you you said at one point, you're like, she's mankind from the waist down. And so the rest of the movie, all I'm doing is looking and it's mankind walking up to Brett only on the top half. He's his wife. Uh, but they they didn't jumping way ahead past the documentary. They eventually did separate and uh, and and divorce. And he has a new wife now, which I, I assume he's still with. Yeah, no, actually, he's on his second wife since leaving. Since then, uh, okay, since divorcing Julia, he had a very very brief wife, uh, marriage to an Italian woman, uh, and it turns out that that marriage didn't work up because he didn't want to live in Italy and she didn't want to live in Canada, which is something you think they talk about before you get married. You would think so. That is, that's like the plot of so many romantic comedies. You'd think people would figure that out beforehand. I, I, I gotta say though, just judging her by this, I don't know her from much else other than this documentary. Yeah. And judging her by this documentary, this is a woman with no sunshine in her life. This is a sad woman that you don't want to spend a lot of time around. Brett needed to put on his CCMs and skate away from her as quickly as he could. Yes. <laughs> um, so then we get uh, Brett talking about the fans turning on him, how he doesn't really understand how you could be um, a, you know, somebody who's good, you have good morals, you present yourself properly. And the fans boo you and cheer somebody like Stone Cold or or HBK, who seem like the the, the anti-authority guys. He uh, we see an in-ring promo where Brett, uh, Brett vents about the American fans, and then he talks about an interesting dynamic that existed, uh, probably for the only time ever in this in the sport, where he was a bad guy in the USA, but everywhere else he went, he was treated like like a good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which, which was, you know, he, he talks a lot that, uh, about that a lot, uh, in this. And then, uh, his book is really interesting too. It's, it's, you know, 500 something pages and he talks a lot about his career in it and, and really gets into the meat of all these different aspects of his career. I mean, if you're at all interested in, in, in Bret Hart after seeing this documentary, uh, his book is great. Uh, I think it's, um, I forgot the name of it at this point, but, uh, it's written by Bret Hart and it's the only book he's put out. Well, I, I think people are more interested in finding out more about the Patriot. <laughs> yes. Janet, so. here's the Patriot, comes yeah. in, and then they attack him during the music, during the during the patriotic music. It's not even over. Yeah, and I and actually, I wanted to ask you about this. Was this 
the original Patriot, I think Dell Del Wilkes. Wilkes. This would have been Dell Wilkes. There's uh, there's a lot of dispute. We have seen the Patriot perform, and it wasn't Dell Wilkes. Uh, yes. The Patriot is on the circuit, I believe, more than once, but at least once the Patriot's out there. And Sal Sincere is, is yes, he sold the him. gimmick to Sal Sincere, yes. But he claims he didn't sell it to Sal Sincere, and Sal Sincere is just telling everybody he did. But yeah, I don't know how what. Do you stop it. Why do you? Why does the Patriot gimmick need to go on? Can't you? Could couldn't you make up your own Patriot gimmick? I mean, I think I could make up one within twenty minutes. I think I yeah. could sit down and be like, all right, what am I? Uh, I liberty. I'm going to be Liberty. I'll just be called Liberty, and I'll come out with the flag, and I'm going to paint a flag on my face. No, on my chest. Yeah. I'll paint a flag on my chest. I'm Liberty. Okay, no Liberty. You think of Lady Liberty. All right. Well, then why don't I go with I'm America Man. I'm man America. I mean, you, there's there's so much you could do, and yeah. nobody cares. You could just be like, it's the American guy. That, yeah. Nobody cares what the Patriot. Nobody remembers. This is this is some of the best screen time the Patriot has ever gotten. Was <laughs> I was amazed to see it, and I'm sure he was too at the time. You know, and and especially it's probably in his collection now as being a highlight of his career, having that that you know that run that he had with Brett. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't remember the Patriot, he was basically an American luchador. He had, uh, you know, red, white, and blue trunks, and he wore a red, white, and blue luchador mask. And that was the Patriot. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the next thing that they go to, they they got the promo in Pittsburgh, uh, which which Brett regrets doing. You remember yes, this part? Where, yes, where he says if if they were going to uh, America needs an Flush enema, mm -hmm. and if they were going to give it one, uh, it would it would probably be inserted right in Pittsburgh. And, and and then he's like, I just don't think it would have been Pittsburgh. I mean, he's like really overthinking it afterwards. He's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, we're going to insert it. I mean, there's there's other places I'd go before I'd go to Pittsburgh, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, and then, uh, then an off-screen voice says Washington, D.C., and Brett says, yeah, probably. Yeah, it was just very odd. Um, th then they go to an event that I attended, SummerSlam 1997, and not only did I attend, I saw them filming this. Okay, I was at this event at well, uh, as well. We were not there together. Right. Um, but I was so excited when this came on because I did not remember this. And unfortunately, I did not see them filming. I saw them filming and because I, I went there because they had the giant inflatable Undertaker, which I have a picture of me standing in front of somewhere. Oh, well, that's uh, great. But I saw them filming this. I didn't know what they were filming for. I assumed it was just some WWE stuff. You get a lot of fans saying a lot of slightly homophobic things, which was really, really acceptable back then. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, like the one fan who's like, Sean's in Playgirl. That's no good. You know, men read that more than women, and you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of throwing around the other f word at Sean at this time. Yeah, yeah, and and this event was notable for a, a couple of reasons. You know, the main event where HBK was the special guest right. for the Brett versus Taker match, but also this was the event where Owen Hart broke Stone Cold's neck. Yes, and I saw it. I was sitting up very high and. Uh, uh, it was clear as day that, that yes. Owen yep, did that move wrong. And the, the, the deal with it was, j unlike the Brett match where he could have just jobbed to Dino Bravo and no one would have cared, the yes. stipulation for this match was that Brett, uh, that I'm sorry, Owen w was going to, was, had the Intercontinental title and Stone Cold was supposed to win it, which obviously you could do on another day. But the stipulation was if the, if Owen won, Stone Cold had to kiss his behind. And so, yes. 
they were going to have to just prop him up with a broken neck. And so they couldn't do that. They had to, he had to gut out that terrible finish and finish that match. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, Stone Cold gingerly, uh, you know, reaching up miraculously and grabbing Owen's trunks and Owen being the, the pro that he was, you know, selling it, you know, pretty well into a, you know, what you could describe as a small package and Stone Cold getting the win. But, um, it's interesting that this was the same event, uh, you know, that resulted in the HBK, you know, Bret Hart sort of feud. So HBK is the special guest. Right. Bret's really concerned that HBK is going to take some of his, his heel heat here because the, the finish has talked about that HBK is going to inadvertently hit Taker with a chair, causing him the match and the belt. And I think... Brett had a legitimate concern here. It did seem weird that you would have, you know, two heels in a match, um, you know, with that kind of ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. It was it was an odd card, um, and it was a, it was an interesting time in wrestling for this. Um, I want to actually mention something that's not in this film that was an important moment for me that I just thought of on that day. On that day, I was there uh, with a friend of mine, and she wanted to see the wrestlers come in. You know, she was like, "Oh, where do the wrestlers come in?" And so we went over, you know, SummerSlam 1997 at the uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey, at the uh, Continental Airlines Arena. That's what it was I, called I, at that time. Yeah, yeah, which I love seeing. That was how I initially realized. You know, I mean that the, that building has uh, such a unique shape to it. That was mm-hmm. the first thing I noticed, and then to confirm it, you know, I, I you know, I saw there it was in, in big letters after it was, you know, initially called the Brendan Byrne Arena and then the it's Continental right. Airlines Arena. So we go over to this one area, and this is where, you know, we're there hours before the event. You know, we we spent the whole day there. And so the wrestlers would drive in, and some of them would – and I, I don't know what the deal was, you know, whether you got permission to drive on or not, you know, maybe maybe how big you were on the card or, or, or whether you were carpooling or, or something. But uh, some of them would park outside, and somebody else would then move their car someplace else. Some of them would actually park right, you know, inside. And like you'd see people walk by and you would be, you were kind of up above them a little bit. And so you'd see guys walk by and you'd shout, oh, you know, you know, whoever it was, you know, Undertaker. And, you know, they'd keep walking. Yeah. And Brian Pillman comes by and I was like, hey, Brian Pillman. And Brian Pillman walks over and goes, yeah, what's up? <laughs> and and not in like an angry way or anything, just like he literally thought I must have something to say to him. And I was like. I think you're great, Brian Pillman. And he was like, oh, good, good. And he, he shook hands with both of us and then just walked inside. But I remember it was such a weird moment because I, I had no idea what to say at that point. I was I was at a loss for words. <laughs> that almost seems like something out of a movie. And I got to tell you, that was one of the, the things watching this is, you know, seeing Brian Pillman and seeing Owen and seeing Bulldog, these are all guys that are no longer with us. Oh, yeah, um, there's – there's a whole host of guys you see in here that aren't also uh, Dino Bravo's long yeah. gone. Yeah. Stu and, Hart, and it, Stu and his and and his wife are both gone. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was it was it was nice seeing, you know, these people, you know, some of them while they were still in their prime and it really like seeing Pillman and he's really not in this very much, but every time I saw him in this, I I stopped and and thought to myself, "Wow, he really was something special. Oh. He was, you know, he was just a, a great talent, and you know he did some great work in in WWF, 
you know, coming back from an injury, but he really had a great career prior to that in, in WCW and in ECW. And he originally started out in a tag team with Stone Cold, right? Yes, he did. Uh, yeah. He was flying Brian Hollywood. Pillman and Hollywood Blondes. Yeah. Stone Cold with a terrible head of hair. <laughs> yes. Um, Stone Cold, I think to this day, still wears, he wears, uh, it, it, you'll see him with a gold chain with a ring on it. And that's a ring that Pillman gave him that I guess he didn't, doesn't wear for whatever reason, but wears it around his neck. Um, yeah, no, Pillman just loved Pillman, loved him in, in ECW, uh, loved him in WCW. I mean, this was a guy, he wrestled with a broken neck on the first episode of Nitro. This was a guy that was skinnier than anybody you ever saw in wrestling, was faster than anybody you saw. I mean, just had, and by skinny, I just mean he had such a low body fat, you know, a percentage, just a, a really, really great guy. And he also, you know, then had this injury and then reinvented himself, came out in ECW. I remember him coming out in ECW and I was at the ECW arena and they always describe it that he almost started a riot. And I don't know that that's the case because those fans were ready to riot almost every event. Yes. <laughs> but I just remember him saying a lot of racist things and he had, he had a black guy with him and he was saying, pointing at the crowd and saying racist things. It was really weird. You know, I, I haven't seen the clip of it again, but I just remember he could work a crowd like nobody else. And, you know, and that was, uh, that was brilliant. I mean, just a, a, a an unusual guy and a guy that, uh, that went way too soon along with a lot of other people in this. Yeah, and he also he ended up having a program with with Stone Cold, and they probably had what is has to be considered the <laughs> the, the <gun>. rarest <laughs> raw footage aside from probably the the lost Chris Benoit tribute episode. But yeah, you know, I think you're probably right. I'm wondering if they've now re you know put that onto a DVD or something, you know, as part of a documentary. I don't know, but I'm wondering if like you know one of the uh, best of you know the 15 years of Monday Night Raw or whatever, you know, if they've now dug it up and shown it again. But at the time, Pillman pulling a gun on Stone Cold and saying the f word scared everybody watching into thinking i remember like they would cut from the end of that always it would cut from raw to a newscaster at usa network and he'd be like you know because mm, i was wrestling now we're gonna do the news and he always had this look like okay that's stupid wrestling i have to follow and i remember this time he literally had a look on his face like he was a little shocked about what he had just seen yeah now my my biggest memory of that and it's been a couple years since I've seen that footage. I don't remember where. It might even be on the Brian Pillman documentary that WWE put out. Could be. But and and help me remember here, but yeah. I remember there being a random refrigerator in their living room. Yeah, well, yeah, it's I think they're <laughs> like a it's like a den. It's definitely not a kitchen. I'm yeah. thinking it might have been like Brian's version of the man cave. Uh it was like the room where he would watch TV and they had a whole fridge there, you know, so he could keep cuz Brian liked to drink. I remember when he when he died, they they the amount of pill bottles and and beer cans and everything that the police were shocked about how many there were in the room mm -hmm. and everybody that was there said, "No, that's, you know, that was pretty standard for Brian Pillman who yeah. lived life on 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 the edge of the dime. Yeah, and he did he end up dying of a undiagnosed heart condition? Uh, you know what? I don't remember. He died. He died. You know, the the night before an event. There's you know the the whole big story behind it, and I, I think it was a heart issue. I just wonder how much the heart had to do with taking 
you know, medication he shouldn't have. But I think if I remember correctly, he had a, had a heart defect. He had like some kind of heart disease and then it was, uh, you know, uh, triggered by, you know, by taking, taking things and doing things he shouldn't have for a long time. Yeah. I, I know we watched the, the Pillman documentary together a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's one I'd, I'd love to watch again. Cause I remember immediately when that one was over, I said that was one of the best documentaries the WWE had done. And they've since gone on to make, a ton of tremendous documentaries. They've really gotten good at, at they've almost perfected perfected the formula of of the the documentary yeah, for and their wrestlers. It, it's nice to see some of the old ones because you know they they tend to get forgotten. You know they don't re-release them a lot, and they don't they don't have their network yet to show them. So you don't really you don't really get to see them unless you have classics on demand or you bought it at some point in time. There's no video store that you can kind of roam through the aisles and look for. And I mean. Unless it's on Netflix or something, you know, like this uh, documentary is, people don't see it. Yeah, it's a shame. Speaking of people that aren't around anymore, I saw a commercial break around this point where they had Robert Stack for Web TV. Oh wow! And he was doing. Do you remember that TV show he did? I think it was Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, yeah, which they parodied in uh, basketball. Yes, they did a great parody of it where he says, you know, uh, that they're going to a heartless, horrible place. Disney World, I think, is his his line. But he, he, uh, Robert Stack, wonderful voice, great actor. Uh, I believe it was the Untouchables on television that he was really big for many, 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 many years ago. But he did this uh, commercial for Web TV, which kind of parodied that show. I think he would always wear like an overcoat in that. Trench coat, yeah. Yeah. The reason why I say kind of i don't remember that show very well it wasn't a show i watched so i just knew of it it was in pop culture and i kind of came across it here and there so i watched this commercial and i was like what are they doing and then i was like (laughs) oh this is a parody of something that i've totally forgotten about yeah and you know what's funny that show lived after him um i saw a a a rerun you know at this point it, it was a couple years old i don't know if they're still doing brand new episodes but it was from the 2000s and it was hosted by Dennis Farina. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. With his mustache. Oh, of course. <laughs> that is fantastic. At this point, um, we see more of uh, the, what they, they're talking about. How there's 10 more years of wrestling, you know, and, and, and she doesn't want to do any more. Uh, Julie, I, I mean, Brett's wife is far more concerned about whether he should wrestle than he is. Yeah, he, you know, he, he, he expresses, you know, his desire to leave the business. Uh, he questions whether he can or not. You know, he, he, he compares himself to characters in the Shawshank Redemption and says, yeah. you know, at the end of 10 years, can I sort of lead a normal life? And he says, I can't wait to try. Yeah. And watching this in retrospect, we know that Brett, you know, he went on to WCW. He had a stroke. Um, he was out of the business for a very long time. And then finally he, you know, sort of made amends with, with Vince. And, you know, came back in, in a couple of different roles in the last couple of years. Um, but there was a long period where he, you know, he pretty much wasn't in wrestling. Mm-hmm. The the talk that she has about how she can't stand when he's on the road is interesting. A lot of times you hear this about wrestling. I remember hearing Bobby Heenan years ago. Someone asked him about how he could be on the road 300 days out of the year. And he and they said, what, do, how, what does your wife think about it? He goes, oh, we wouldn't be married if I was home any more than that. Yes. <laughs> um, and I've actually met Bobby and his wife. Uh, she she comes with him now to uh, signings, at least the, the two I've seen him at. And, and she's great. But I thought that was just a, a wonderful Bobby Heenan quote. Yeah, yeah. Um, is this the part where we see Brett in a woman's shirt? 
where he mentions he's like he's like why did you put me in this pansy shirt or something like that? Yeah, he's got like he calls a, it the, the Julie shirt. Yeah, I think there's uh, it, it was right around this time. Yeah, again, she fit in the same size shirt as a bulking male wrestler. Yeah, and that's another thing, and, and it might have even been you that that mentioned this to me, but you know, Brett's one of those guys that everybody always mentions as being smaller or oh, whatever, sure. but. I, I thought it was you where you mentioned yeah, being I can close tell to you him in story. person. Yeah. yeah. I was I was in high school and I would go to the gym all the time. I thought I was so big and I'd watch on TV. I'd watch wrestling and I'd be like, well, Hulk Hogan is an absurd human being. But I bet you physically I, I'm probably close to Bret Hart's size because you watch it on TV and you'd be like, yeah, you know, the one, two, three kid is smaller than me. And Bret Hart is the same size as me. And I went there and I was on the rail at a WWE live show and Brett came up and I was like, wow, I come up to like his shoulder. Maybe, you know, his arms are like twice the size of, of, they're like the size of my stomach. You know, he was just mammoth. And I was amazed at how big he is. And then I saw Sean Waltman, another guy who you see on TV. And while he's smaller than most of the other wrestlers at the time, not a small guy by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I remember we were at a a live event together one time (laughs) and we had those two guys behind us that, They were probably more entertaining than the the in ring action, oh, just with their comments. And one of their comments was they were they were debating and arguing about how much Sean Waltman weighed. And yeah. I think they were saying he weighed he at, at most he weighed 160 pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. They just no, no way, no way. <laughs> I've sat behind some crazy people over the years. I I remember uh, sitting behind – well, first of all, I remember – and I'll never forget this because I was just so close to it. There was a, a adorable little chubby kid, but he just kept – he was eating nachos, and he just put that cheese on the side of his pant leg right next to mine. And I remember sitting there being like, don't lean over. There's lots of nacho there. But I also remember sitting next to a guy who who uh, who was speaking in Spanish the whole time. But when when Razor Ramon came out, he kept going Razor Raton, Razor Raton, and he he thought that was the funniest thing ever, and he kept repeating it. Uh, uh. And that same guy. At this particular WWE pay-per-view, they had a Bill Clinton impersonator hanging out with IRS and the Million Dollar Man. And this guy goes to me, he's like, oh, man, you think if I go over there, I can shake hands with the president? I've never met the president. And I was like, the president doesn't come to the WWF event. And I swear to God, it looked like I had just told him, you know, your your family is all dead. I'm sorry, sir. (laughs) They've all passed away. And there Clinton was the second best – so, uh, political impersonator they had the first of course being the 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 obama they had and they've had multiple obamas but <laughs> you're talking the one the, that the one with the, the fake the, ears that wrestled hillary <laughs> yeah but then also the one that santino was teaching to do the cobra oh that one that one thought, was better mm-hmm, yes <laughs> and the secret service thought he was somehow attempting to assassinate him by teaching him the cobra yes indeed All right, well, that's going to bring it to a close. We are not done with this movie, but we are done with this episode of Camel Clutch Cinema. We will be back next week with more about Brett Hitman Hart and Wrestling with Shadows. Craig Cohen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And we will see you next time on Camel Clutch Cinema. There's never been a right time to say goodbye. But if I stay... You only see right through me. And then that look of shame inside my eyes. So 
I'd rather turn away. Cause things you're gonna say will break her heart and make her cry. There's never been a right time to say goodbye. To say goodbye.